Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, welcome to episode 30, the first episode of the new year, 2021. Today's episode, like every episode, is brought to you by you guys. This is a listener-supported podcast. There are no sponsors, no advertisements to interrupt at any point. The only interruptions are when I get distracted or go on a tangent and tell you a story about being a young wine intern. You don't need to hear about any advertiser who wants you to buy something. Here, we only talk about what you guys have asked to learn about. If you've been with me since the beginning, you'll know that this podcast has a lot of different types of episodes. Sometimes we talk to coffee producers, often we talk about microbiology, but my main goal is to share the scientific concepts behind the coffee folklore. Coffee knowledge among producers is mainly driven by tradition and passed down through generations. I have found that there are several concepts around processing that we take for granted. This will be a more technical episode where we will talk about the sugar compounds like carbohydrates, sucrose, glucose, and fructose, and sweetness as a concept. For example, where does sweetness come from? Or can something taste sweet but have no sugar? And how do we even measure sugar in coffee in the first place? For our time together today, I want to share what I've seen working with my clients, and by the end, I hope to give you a different perspective on the topic of sugar in coffee and how to use bricks. If you're a coffee producer, I hope this information will help you find a better target and improve coffee quality by avoiding common mistakes. If you're a roaster or importer, I hope this information will give you a different perspective on giving any advice regarding a topic so complex. Many producers have been set on the wrong path and have lowered their coffee quality by listening to roaster advice about bricks or being gifted a refractometer to use for picking decisions. If you're a coffee drinker, I hope this information helps you deepen your appreciation of this complex beverage. I hope you enjoy learning more about some of the more common things in your life. For example, as you know, I travel a lot and I need to pack light, so several years ago I started buying wool clothing. A sheep's sebaceous glands secrete lanolin onto the wool and coats the fibers in a waxy substance full of fatty acids that inhibit the growth of mold, mildew, and bacteria. This means that compared to synthetic fibers, woolen items are naturally antimicrobial and can be washed less frequently and smell much fresher. Merino wool is lightweight and easy to pack and dries quickly. I could travel with one, maybe two pairs of almost anything. I could wear it during the day, wash the item in the sink if needed, and then I would let it dry overnight and wear it again the next day. I had wool shoes, wool socks, and underwear, uh, wool t-shirts, and sweaters. I had pretty much a complete wool outfit. I had so much wool in my life, but I never really thought about where it came from until I read this book called Vanishing Fleece by Clara Parks. The book is about the vanishing American wool industry. Even if you don't own a wool wardrobe like I do, this book is fascinating and I found a lot of overlap between the multi-step, hands-on, labor-intensive process of getting from a sheep to a skein of yarn as from getting from a coffee tree to a cup of brewed coffee. Also, it has nothing to do with today's topic of sugar. It's just rad to know more about the things that we take for granted. And I want to thank my cousin Sydney for sending me the book. Sydney is a talented knitter and I aspire to be like her. So, can you tell I'm procrastinating a little bit? 
I was looking back over my notes for what I wanted to write for this episode. And right at the top of my notes were these like giant block letters saying season one, episode three. And it was dated January 2019. So for two years, the document was basically untouched. The misunderstanding of bricks and sugar content for coffee is one of the main themes I wanted to explore in the podcast, and yet it's taken two seasons and 29 episodes to get to the subject of sugar. But if I'm honest, it goes back much further than that. Sweetness, sugar, and bricks is something that I've been talking about in my presentations and consulting work since 2014. When I first started working with producers and trying to communicate my work, I realized that it's a place many of us get lost. Which is confusing because sugar seems like a simple topic. But I believe this is precisely why we need to have this conversation. It's one of the foundational concepts that often goes unexamined and unchallenged. The main reason this episode has taken me so long to write is because I have a lot to say about bricks and sugar and coffee, and it felt like a daunting task. I think part of the hesitation was that I saw so much bad information and confusion, I didn't know where to start. I felt overwhelmed. Last year, I asked the podcast patrons to vote on topics they wanted to hear about in the podcast. I was hoping you guys would vote for bricks and give me extra pressure to finally get it done. The other topic up for voting was terroir. I honestly thought that bricks would win by a landslide, but over the three weeks that the poll was live, the two topics had a razor-thin margin between them, and they frequently flipped back and forth to which was winning. Ultimately, terroir won by a single vote. Brody joined Patreon so that he could vote and ended up influencing five weeks of my life that it took to put those three episodes together. You guys, do not underestimate the power of your votes. Brody has a YouTube channel where he covers coffee on a broad range of topics from reviews of coffee shops in different cities to tips to taking better pictures and coffee interviews. I'll link his Instagram and YouTube channel in the show notes. You should definitely check out his videos for a fun and playful take on coffee. So anyway, thanks to Brody's vote, I was once again able to end another year and escaped writing about my biggest challenge. But no more. It's the first week of the first month of the new year, and it's finally time to tackle my white whale. You guys, I've wanted to make something like this for the past six years. So if you're here on episode 30 of this podcast, I'm going to take for granted that you already understand a few things. Number one, here we talk about coffee as a fruit and not as a bean. And number two is that you know that the pulp and the mucilage layer of the fruit is a fuel for our fermentation. If you're not sure why fermentation is important for coffee flavor and quality, go back and listen to episode 15. All right. So, all things being equal, I believe we would all rather have a delicious cup of coffee versus a mediocre one. And we know that high-quality coffee is important for deliciousness. And I hope I've convinced you that fermentation is important for quality. And now we get to go even further back to see how important sugar is to fermentation. You can see that so much of what we talk about when we talk about coffee depends on the sugar in the fruit, the coffee cherries. If we don't have this concept solid, the rest of the structure is compromised. As far as fermentation goes, your sugar source is incredibly important. Fermentation is the car. It can take you down many roads, some scenic and beautiful, and some treacherous and better to avoid. But while fermentation may be the vehicle, fruit sugar is a fuel in the gas tank. 
No matter how fancy the car or how powerful the engine, we can't go anywhere if the tank is empty. This is the first place that I want you to think differently about sugar. Many take for granted that the sugar in the fruit of the coffee cherry is directly connected to the sweet cup of coffee. Most of us think that if the fruit is sweet, the brewed coffee will also be sweet. However, the journey from coffee fruit to brewed coffee undergoes many transformations and the relationship between the fruit and the roasted and brewed coffee is not transparent like most people would think. A direct relationship has not been found by scientists. Many producers and roasters think that the higher sugar in the fruit will lead to sweeter roasted coffee. Therefore, they seek and chase high sugar numbers, meaning high bricks numbers, in their fruit. This seems pretty logical, but because of the many processing steps in coffee, this scenario rarely plays out as expected. Sometimes what happens is that a coffee producer has a good coffee, maybe on the lower end of specialty coffee, maybe around 80 to 82 points, but they want to get up in the mid to high 80s. They want an excellent cup of coffee. If they have been picking coffee by sight, meaning picking the cherries based on how red they are, perhaps they get the advice to stop picking by sight and to start picking by measuring the bricks. Perhaps they buy or are gifted or given a refractometer and they start to measure bricks values. This seems like helpful advice. After all, quality usually improves when you can add an objective measurement like bricks, a single instrument to give you a definite number versus a subjective measurement like the color of the cherry, which means that every picker would have a different criteria. But what I have seen time and time again is instead of increasing coffee quality, the quality generally goes down. The coffee is less interesting. It's not as good. These results are so contradictory to what is expected that instead of questioning the method, most question themselves first. Maybe they aren't using it well enough. Maybe the instrument is not calibrated. Maybe they just need to take even more measurements. This reminds me of another pattern we've talked about before with fermentation. Originally, fermentation was seen as a problem, the obstacle towards efficiency and quality coffee, a problem to be solved. Fermentation was slow, and sometimes coffee could be ruined. And then engineers did solve the problem of fermentation by creating a mechanical demucilaginator, the machine that uses water and friction to remove mucilage from the coffee and eliminates the need for fermentation altogether. By using this machine, producers saved time and water, and the coffee was clean and had fewer defects. It was a great success. Many of these machines were sold and widely used. But after some time, the feedback was that, yes, the coffees were free of defects, but they were also lower in flavor and less interesting. In an effort to solve the problem of fermentation, they created a new problem that the coffees were dull and interchangeable. Almost every mill that I visit today has a machine like this, usually rusty and abandoned and unused. And if they are still using it, one of the first things I advise is to stop using it. They are great to make commercial-grade commodity coffees, large volumes of, you know, pretty clean coffee. However, if you're trying to make differentiated coffees, specialty coffees, then fermentation is your friend and should not be skipped. The cautionary tale of mechanical demucilaginators is similar to what is happening with bricks. The best-case scenario I have seen is that it's an extra measurement, extra data that is collected and filed away. Essentially, just busy work. 
At worst, like I mentioned, it's extra effort, extra expense, and reduced quality. Before we get too deeply into why measuring bricks on coffee cherries has the opposite effect and can actually lower coffee quality, we need to understand where the urge to measure bricks came from. Why would the coffee industry be tempted to adopt something that makes coffee worse? What even is bricks? How is it measured? And what does bricks have to do with sugar and sweetness? So first, I want you to question if you've thought that there was a direct relationship between the fruit and the brewed cup. Instead of thinking of sweetness in the final cup, I want you to adjust your sugar expectations. Yes, sugar is incredibly important for quality, but not because the sugar in the fresh fruit is directly linked to your brewed cup. Having adequate sugar in the fruit will affect the final brewed cup, but with an indirect relationship. The fruit sugar or carbohydrates will be transformed during roasting and they are also the fuel for the fermentation. It will dictate the style of fermentation and how long we can go. But we're going to get back to this later, so let's put a pin in that. So currently we have two pins going. Uh, the first one is why measuring bricks has the opposite effect and can actually reduce coffee quality and how the type of sugar affects the style of fermentation. But for the moment, let's back up and talk about sugar more generally. Sugar is important to microbes for fermentation, but it's also important to us coffee drinkers. Why is sugar so important? This seems like a simple question. Sugar is important because sweet things taste good. I hear from a lot of coffee producers and they would all like more sweetness in their coffee. Usually because roasters tell them that they would like to buy coffees with more sweetness. We basically all want more sweetness. Not necessarily because we're all sugar addicts, but probably more likely because caffeine is quite bitter. Sugar is an important component to making the brewed beverage palatable. There's a huge industry of flavored syrups, creamers, milks, and milk alternatives to help tone down the bitterness of coffee. Even people who drink their coffee black are able to do so because there is enough sweetness from the fruit and the roasting process. And as more and more people drink their coffee black without any additives, the coffee's innate sweetness is under more scrutiny. Sweetness in coffee, in the way that we talk about specialty coffee, is a very new concept. Even though many cultures have been drinking coffee for a long time, the requirement that coffee be sweet is very recent. Or rather, that the sweetness comes only from the coffee is a very recent requirement. Coffee and milk or coffee and sugar, or coffee plus milk and sugar, these have been very common equations. I'm currently in Colombia and the coffee workers here drink something called tinto, which is coffee plus panela. Panela is a byproduct of sugarcane processing. But if you actually taste the tinto, it's less coffee plus panela and more panela plus a little bit of coffee. Colombia grows a lot of sugarcane. Sugarcane brings the sweet, so the coffee doesn't have to. But if the trend is that now we are drinking our coffee without milk and granulated sugar or syrups, the sweetness requirement is now completely the burden of the coffee fruit. It's kind of funny to me to think that drinking something without extras would be a trend. Usually trends work by adding, not removing something, but here we are. Anyway, coffee didn't used to need to be sweet. Wanting coffee to be sweet is a very new concept. In the first and second waves of coffee, it was most important that coffee was hot, and caffeinated, and toning down the bitterness was the job of milk, creamer, table sugar, and flavored syrups. But as the third wave of coffee asks for differentiated coffees, coffees that are unique, this is a different story. 
It's unlikely that a buyer is going to go out of their way to find a differentiated coffee, pay the additional price, ship the precious cargo across the world, and then, once it gets to them, add a flavored syrup to it. So on top of being unique and differentiated, now coffee has to be sweet too. And this is a tough job that has previously been outsourced and now is falling on the shoulders of the coffee producers. This is why there is so much confusion and bad information. Just like in the trend of extended fermentation, the consumers, the buyers, the coffee demand is asking something that has not been asked before, and coffee producers are at a loss. They've never been asked to do this before. They have not been asked for long fermentations and for sweet coffee. And then we are confused that they're not experts at giving us sweet coffee with long fermentations. And if a producer can get lucky and find this winning combination of factors, it's usually a one-off micro lot because it's very difficult to replicate and even more difficult to replicate at scale. Just like fermentation, the concept of sugar and sweetness also falls under the topic of a power imbalance that we've talked about before on this podcast. The consumers have more power because they are driving the demand, and we, the consumers, are the ones with more access to information than most of the coffee producers in the world. But we've got enough material to cover on the topic of sugar without getting into ethics and power imbalance, so we're going to leave that aside for now. Back to the three tenets of specialty coffee. What has been drilled into my head is that specialty coffee is clean, sweet, and uniform. Clean, sweet, and uniform. It's a nice little mantra. Clean and uniform speak to the lack of defects, and sweetness from the seed is important because these coffees are largely drunk black, without any additives. Clean and uniform are pretty straightforward to achieve. Getting clean and uniform coffee requires following basic hygiene rules and tracking some data. I promise you, every producer in the world with some basic guidelines can get clean and uniform coffee. But right in the middle of the mantra is sweet. Clean, sweet, uniform. It's tucked in there like it's just as simple to achieve. But sweetness is the most elusive and problematic factor. Many producers all over the world battle with sweetness. I believe the reason has a lot to do with topics discussed in episode 26, Do Coffee Trees Talk? But it's too early to diagnose. Right now, we're still trying to define the problem. I believe the reason has a lot to do with the topics discussed in episode 26, Do Coffee Trees Talk? But this episode isn't about trying to diagnose the sugar problem. This episode is about trying to define the problem in the first place. So specialty coffees... The kind that I talk about most on this podcast are generally subject to longer fermentation times. The processes are extended to maximize flavor potential. One of the most common desires of coffee producers is to have sweeter coffee. One of the most common questions I get is, can fermentation help me have a sweeter coffee? Or can yeast make my coffee sweeter? Or some version of that. When looking to play with the fermentation, the most desired goal is to add sweetness to the coffee. I can promise my clients and anyone really that extended fermentations can add acidity to the coffee. They can add body and texture to the mouthfeel. I can promise you fruity or floral flavor notes. But asking for more sweetness from a fermentation is like asking the sun to shine at night. A fermentation with yeast happens because the yeast consume the available sugar in the pulp and sticky mucilage to create the flavor compounds, the esters and thiols and polysaccharides that provide mouthfeel. 
The longer the fermentation, the more sugar is consumed by the yeast. Therefore, the less sugar is left in the coffee fruit. Remember the fermentation car. The sugar in the mucilage is like the gasoline in the tank. The longer you drive, the further you will be from where you started, and also the less gasoline you have left. As soon as you start driving, you immediately start running out of gas. In a fermentation, you are always running out of sugar. It is a limiting reagent. Looking for a fermentation to help with more sugar in your coffee is like expecting driving longer is how you get more gas in your tank. But Lucia, you may be thinking, can't you just drive the car to another gas station and fill up? Yes, we can extend the metaphor and you can get other fuel sources and you can add more sugar. This definitely happens. But we will also leave that for another time, another episode. Perhaps on another episode when we talk about additives and what should be considered true coffee. This is also something that a lot of coffee professionals are tackling at the moment as you know, this, this third wave is, is moving forward and we have all of this innovation in coffee fermentations. There's a lot of people that are questioning what is true coffee and what needs to be disclosed and what is natural. Um, so anyway, I think it's a pretty interesting conversation that a lot of people are trying to have and I will probably have it on the podcast at some point, but again, not today. So maybe you're a savvy coffee professional and you knew this already. Many in the coffee industry know that fermented and washed coffees are using up their fruit sugar, but some of them twist this information by believing that honey and natural coffees are sweeter because the fruit sugar is absorbed into the seed instead of being fermented and used up or potentially washed away. We know the coffee seed is permeable. We know that water in the seed has to diffuse out in order to dry and roast the coffee. We know that caffeine molecules in the seed can diffuse out and create decaffeinated coffees. And we know that it's not just a one-direction relationship with stuff coming out of the coffee. Because if you're not careful during the drying process, coffee can absorb more moisture from a humid environment and end up even wetter than you started. We know that coffee seeds can absorb compounds too, flavor compounds. So we know that coffee seeds must absorb fermentation flavors through a diffusion process. So it is a reasonable guess that sugar from the fruit would or could diffuse into the seeds. However, when we examine this guess with additional information, it breaks down and is no longer true. Many believe that dry process or natural coffees and honey processed coffees are sweeter because the sugar on the outside permeates the seed. This is a reasonable guess that the sugar from the fruit would diffuse into the seed. However, when we examine this guess a little bit further with more information, it breaks down. The first thing to know is that dry processed coffees, like naturals or honey process, are undergoing a fermentation. Even if you are not processing coffee with a traditional tank fermentation, the coffee cherries still experience a fermentation. It's much slower than what is happening in the tank with pulped coffee, But yeast and bacteria are still fermenting, are still breaking down sugar molecules and converting it to flavor precursors. There was this misconception that only pulped coffees were fermented, but we know now that honey process and naturals are also fermented, and that microbes are a big part of the coffee cherry's journey to be a dry seed. And again, the exception is when cherries are picked and immediately pulped and mechanically washed and dried. If the cherries are pulped right away, there is less chance of a spontaneous fermentation. 
And then when you mechanically remove the mucilage with friction and water, this takes away the fuel for any remaining microbes. And then if you take the third step and mechanically dry the coffee very, very quickly, then the low moisture, again, dramatically reduces the chance of microbial activity. So not all coffees have a microbial influence, but you have to go to very extreme lengths to remove the microbial influence from coffees. So the default is microbes play a really big role and you have to try really, really hard to remove them. But again, it is possible. Okay, so the first misconception is that only wet processed or washed coffees are fermented and are the ones losing sugar. If you've listened to the other episodes of this podcast before, I'm pretty sure we already knew that. That's not new information. Just just covering our bases here. Um, but the other thing that you may not know is that sugar is hygroscopic. This means that it is very attracted to water and it holds on tight. In the case of dry process and natural coffees, they are dried on a patio or a raised bed. And the goal of drying the seeds is to get the water out of the seed. So the water that's inside and get that out. A coffee cherry can start out around 60% moisture content, and for it to be stable enough to be shipped to roasters across the world, we want it to be around 10 to 11% moisture content. This means the direction of the water is out, away from the seed. And since sucrose and glucose and fructose are hygroscopic, they will move with the water, not against it. For sugar in the mucilage to diffuse into the seed while a honey process or a natural process is drying, would break the laws of physics. Once you know this about sugar, it makes a lot less sense that the sugar on the outside would defy gravity and flow opposite the direction that water is flowing. Sugar cannot get into the seed while water is being pulled out of the seed. This also means that regardless of fermentation level, when water is pulled out of the seed, it can also pull out unbound sugars with it. Glucose and fructose found inside the seed do, in fact, hitch a ride with water as the coffee is drying. I was surprised to learn that washed coffees can have up to 90% less glucose and fructose than the same coffee processed as a natural or honey. A 2005 study by German researchers done in a Brazilian farm and in a lab in Germany with coffee cherries shipped frozen from Mexico and Tanzania, showed that sucrose is largely unchanged in the fruit compared to the green coffee, but that glucose and fructose have dramatic changes based on how the coffee is processed. In fact, these changes are so predictable and dramatically different that the researchers suggested that it could be a way to identify how a coffee was processed. For example, if they were sent a blind sample with no information, they could test the level of glucose left in the green seed and tell you if it was processed as a washed or as a honey. And remember from Dr. Dudley's research that the microbes in the fermentation remain on the green coffee and are so unique that they can be used to identify the country of origin. So these two pieces of information I think are really interesting in terms of traceability, where we can or, you know, not the regular layperson, but as the scientists in the research labs can know a lot about the history of a coffee without having any information. So meaning the process and the microbes and, you know, how these coffees are, are treated, they, they leave clues in the seed and that researchers can pick up on those clues and can um, fill in some back information if it's not available, which I think is pretty cool. 
You can read Dr. Dudley's original research and the study I just mentioned by the German scientist, as well as many other research papers that I use to make these episodes by joining Patreon. Anyway, back to the German scientists. Even though their research showed that 90% of glucose and fructose is reduced in wash process, we know from experience that not all washed coffees taste 90% less sweet than honey or naturals. Even if you think honey and naturals are sweeter, I doubt that you think washed coffees are 90% less sweet. We've all tasted plenty of washed coffees with a lot of sweetness. And if not, go to your specialty coffee shop and ask to try some washed coffees. Or better yet, order some online. Order a coffee that's a wash process and one that's a honey or a dry process, uh, a natural, and make a cup of each and see what you think. My favorite places to order coffee are Merit in Texas, Hatch in Canada, and of course Phoenix in Ohio. If you're in Australia, check out Timely. In Mexico, look for Quantum Crack and Archers in the United Arab Emirates. These are just a small sample of some of my favorite roasters that I hope you'll check out if you're in any of those areas. And maybe you'll order some coffees and you'll do this test and you won't find the 90% difference, but you may find that dry process or natural coffees do taste sweeter to you. And I think this is why the myth persists. But how do we explain the sweetness if not with sugar? If it's not coming from sugar diffusion, where is it coming from? How can something taste sweeter when it's not from sugar. Well, dry process and honey process have a higher rate of yeast activity. Due to the lower moisture content, and they have a lower moisture content, remember, because they are um, either dried on patios or raised beds. So they have a lot more contact with oxygen and and just the general um, environment. So because of this lower moisture content, yeast dominate these fermentations and yeast can create more body and fruitiness compared to a washed process. In a washed process, again, this is uninoculated, just leaving it completely to um, to the natural environment. A wash process has a lot more moisture content because usually it's either pulped or extra water is added to the tank, so maybe a submerged fermentation or an underwater fermentation. And when you have this higher moisture content, it is generally more dominated by bacteria. It's a more favorable environment for bacteria, and these coffees tend to have higher acidity. So you can start to see sweetness and sugar are often thought of as the same thing, but if we want to understand fermentation in microbes, we need to separate them into several components. The first level is understanding that fermentation depletes sugar content but doesn't necessarily reduce sweetness. In fact, a yeast fermentation can deplete the sugar content completely but increase the perception of sweetness compared to the same coffee if it was not fermented. In the honey or dry processed coffees, when the yeast deplete the sugar, they create fruity esters and polysaccharides and you can end up with a coffee that has a thick syrupy mouthfeel and flavors like strawberries or even honey. If your taste buds get the fruity flavor cues and the mouthfeel of something thick and syrupy, it kind of fills in the blank and you have this perception of sweetness that is not coming from sugar at all. In fact, it's coming from an absence of sugar. To be clear, Having a high carbohydrate and sugar content in the fruit is still very important. It's just not the direct relationship that most people think. And if you want more sugar in your fruit, the way to do that is through farming practices, not processing. The carbohydrates in the fruit get there through photosynthesis. This is something that must be done in the field, not at the mill. 
I have a whole presentation on this topic called Worms and Germs. I created the presentation to shed light on the subject, and since I am not an agronomist and I don't give advice about what happens in the field, I asked Sam Knowlton from Soil Symbiotics to share his information on how he works with his clients to make the soil healthier to produce nutrient-dense fruit so that someone like me, who works with fermentations, has a full tank of gas when we start working inside the mill. You can find this 50-minute presentation on my website. And I think that's all the time we have for today. Good job, everybody. We've made it to the end of part one. So here's a quick summary of what I hope makes more sense about sugar and bricks. So first, we challenge the assumption that there is a direct relationship between fruit sugar and the brewed coffee. Coffee doesn't have a direct relationship, but grapes and wine do. And so this is something that we're going to talk a lot more about in the next episode. Uh, next, we learned that if you are fermenting with yeast, you are always running out of sugar. Third, we challenged the assumption that honey or natural coffees are sweeter because they absorb sugar into the seed. They do not. But we do know that washed coffees have a significantly lower amount of glucose and fructose left in the seed. Fourth, we learned that sugar is hygroscopic and is more likely to hitch a ride with water on the way out during drying than to defy the laws of physics and move in the opposite direction of the water flow, meaning it does not absorb into the seed while the coffee seed is drying. Phew! You guys, I have wanted to get these thoughts out of my head and somewhere like this for the past six years. Do you have something that you've been putting off? Even though we've got a lot more ground to cover, now that we are at the end of episode one of the series, I no longer feel like a hypocrite if I encourage you to do it now. Do the thing. Do the thing that you've been putting off like I have. Feels pretty great. Next time, we will cover how bricks became a popular method for use in coffee in the first place. It was borrowed from the wine industry, but how does the wine industry even use it? What is the connection? Um, we're also going to cover refractometers. So we, I talked about it a little bit in this episode. It's the instrument that measures bricks. Um, and I will share with you what the research says about bricks and ripeness and coffee quality. Because we didn't really talk about ripeness at all. We're really focusing on sugar. And I think that's another kind of um, shortcut that a lot of people make, that sugar equals ripeness. And so we're going to untangle those things in the next episode. Um, you can find a copy of the research papers I used for this episode on Patreon. To join the community and support coffee learning, go to patreon.com slash making coffee. And how do you feel? Do you feel better about sugar and coffee or do you feel more confused? Do you disagree with anything on this episode? Do you want to tell me about something I missed? You can do all of that by joining Patreon and joining the discussions with other coffee professionals and coffee enthusiasts. If you're curious about my time on this farm in Colombia, I'm posting a lot of pictures and instructional videos and resources on Patreon of my time here on this farm. And if you want to be notified when a new episode comes out, join my infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. That's L-U-X-I-A dot coffee. I promise I send about one email a month, at most two emails a month. Um... And if you sign up, you'll also get a chance to see pictures related to the episodes or any additional information like that. But most of the information you'll also be able to find uh, in the show notes for each episode. And if you got to the end of this episode and you're looking for more coffee learning, check out the Boss Barista podcast. There is a two-part series on the sea market. 
Coffee prices are often mysterious, and Ashley Rodriguez talks to Rachel Northrup to make sense of it for us. I learned a lot from these two episodes, and I think you will too. It's a completely different side of coffee, but I think it's very important if you want to get a fuller picture. Okay, see you next time on part two. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.